the outdoors for me is about I guess feel, feeling connected. It's about feeling free. It's about feeling healthy, but it's also about feeling connected to kind of the the community living around me or in the place that I'm I'm in. But also connection to the past. And I think that's one of the things that has always motivated me to write about archaeology, um, particularly British archaeology, because ours is quite a little island, and it's absolutely rammed full of the evidence of people's past lives, people's lives who've come before us. You know, this island has been permanently inhabited for more than 10,000 years. Welcome to the Checkpoint podcast. You were just listening to a snippet of the conversation with today's guest, Mariana Hotter. In this episode, my fellow BTR co-founder Rachel and I speak with Marianne, who I connected with previously from taking part in a panel together. And just from listening to her and talking to her, I just knew that she had so much to bring to the table that would bring so much value to the listeners of BTR and our allies. But full disclosure, this is podcasting. This is life. We had some internet challenges. And as you'll hear in the episode, there's some bits that were kind of a little bit out of sync, but but this is real life these things happen and you know you'll enjoy as much as we do listening to some of the bits that weren't so perfect but that's life isn't it before we get into the conversation we just want to share a quick word from one of our supporters the checkpoint is supported by the north face whose fundamental mission remains unchanged since 1966 to provide the best gear for their athletes and the modern day explorer support the preservation of the outdoors and inspire a global movement of exploration mariana hotter is a broadcaster and anthropologist and a fellow of the royal geographical society she studied archaeology and anthropology at Emmanuel College, Cambridge, specialising in social anthropology. You may recognise Marianne from the ITV archaeology programme, Britain's Secret Treasures, where she presented the history of artefacts, including the Stone Priory Seal Matrix and the wreck of HMS Colossus. In Britain's Secret Homes, Marianne covered the stories of historic homes, including Creswell Crags in Derbyshire and St Mungo's Home for Working Girls in London. Marianne also presented the series Feral Children, investigating cases of, quote, feral children, defined as children either raised by or with animals, or children who had survived for a significant period in the wild. She's also contributed to the Weekend World Today programme on the BBC World Service, BBC Radio 4, and is a regular reviewer on the Sky News Paper Review. Marianne has written three books, Britain's Secret Treasures, Hidden Histories, A Spotter's Guide to the British Landscape, and Secret Britain, Unearthing Our Mysterious Past. As Marianne states on her website, I'm passionate about sharing the work of NGOs and humanitarians with as wide an audience as possible, and highlighting the diversity and inequalities of our world. I strongly believe that the outdoors is good for all of us, body and mind, and work with organisations like the National Trust, Ordnance Survey, and the British Mountaineering Council to encourage and inspire more people to hashtag get outside. Marianne, welcome to The Checkpoint. Thank you very much for having me. You're right, it is weird having your recovery web back to you. It's strange, it's yeah. strange. If you, if you it's have, like I'm at my own obituary. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, if you if you had fewer accomplishments, it would be a much shorter intro. So. <laughs> yeah. I also won my twenty five meter bronze <laughs> swimming badge when I was nine. I had to try it twice though, so it was a big achievement. We need to add that and in. Clown, crowning glories. Yeah, I need to get it off. Yeah, the feed. yeah. Put it in there. Put it in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, we like to start by easing, easing our guests into the conversation. Um, and I know that you're a passionate traveller, both for your work and just just because you love it. Um, so I wanted to ask you, on all your travels, what's the best and worst thing you've had to eat? Actually, you've had to, oh, and you've actually had and you've had to eat it. Like either you're on camera or whatever, but you've. Okay, that's um, a good question. So I'm quite. I'm quite unfussy when it comes to eating. Like I'll pretty much eat anything. Um, so I remember I was on an expedition in the Simpson Desert in Australia and we were going to be trekking for 40 days um, through, it's the largest sand dune, parallel sand dune desert in the world. It's quite a specific kind of award. Um, but it's a very dry area, obviously, um, in, in the the centre of the uh, centre of Australia, and we were uh, going to be walking with pack camels, looking for archaeological sites. And we also had um, wildlife experts who were doing kind of uh, surveys as we were going, and a geologist. And when we first started off for the first couple of days, one of the um, local um, land uh, guardians uh, from the Wanganui tribe was with us, and he was like, "Hey, Marianne, come over here, have a look at this." And he was he was just like snacking away on something. And it, it they were witchetty grubs that he was kind of digging out from behind the bark of a particular type of tree. And I was like, oh, this is kind of like classic old school colonial pith helmet anthropology where, you know, the white explorer goes and eats witchetty grubs with the natives. And I was like, I didn't realise you actually ate witchetty grubs. And he was like, no, nah, normally, you know, I'd have a barbecue at home. You know, <laughs> he lives in the town. But they still got a lot of their um, traditional knowledge, um, and they—it's really important to to the people there to share that with the youngsters and to kind of keep that that culture alive, mm -hmm. rather than it become a kind of historical artifact or something that's in books or something that's really abstract. So they'll take the kids away, and families will go out bush and spend time in the desert camping and eating sort of natural foods and foraging. And um, and I so I tasted one of these witch tea grubs. And I'll tell you what, it tasted exactly like Campbell's chicken soup. Oh, wow. I was not expecting that. I thought I was going to have to be polite and kind of go, wow, thank you so much for sharing this with me. Because it wasn't a tourist thing. This wasn't him kind of demonstrating, you know, for the cruise ship passengers um, to have their kind of cultural moment. He, he was just having a snack and shared it with me. I was like, that is surprisingly delicious. I, It didn't look promising, but it was great. So that's both poss possibly the best and the worst thing that I've eaten. Oh, I love it. I love how everything tastes like chicken as well. <laughs> I know. But like cream of chicken soup, because it was kind of slimy, not like kind mm. of smooth. And that colour, you know, that sort of brownie mushroom colour. I know, it's, it doesn't sound great, does it? It, it doesn't. I'm not going to lie. I know. But it was all right. <laughs> My bar, my expectation bar was very low. I was thinking it was going to be rank. Uh, but no, it was all right. Did you ask for seconds then? <laughs> I didn't want to be greedy. <laughs> I had two. I had two and then sort of left it at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. 
Can you tell us what was the last thing that made you laugh? Um, that that thing about the swimming badge. <laughs> um, oh, the things make me laugh all the time. The dog made me laugh this morning because uh, I took him to the. He's getting old now, so he can't really go on particularly long walks. So we went to the park, and he uh, like flumped down onto the grass and was rolling around, and then just looked at me. I was like, come on, it's your turn to scratch my tummy. And the look on his face, it was so sort of, he said everything he needed to on his big furry brown face. I was like, right, sorry, I'll be right with you. <laughs> um, and I've got a little kid, so he's kind of just over two and a half and pretty much every other thing he says is hilarious. So, um, yeah, he walked into the kitchen uh, this morning and there was a, a kind of a, a vase of flowers on the kitchen table and he went, oh, those are looking well, mummy. Mm-hmm. Just he sounded like he was about forty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> Kids do come up with random things, don't they? Where do you even learn to talk like that? I love absolutely. That. Yeah. So he keeps you. Well, it's a combination of keeping you young and also making you feel like you're one hundred and five years old. So combo. <laughs> um, following on from your from what we were talking about earlier, your travels. What where is on your travel bucket list that you haven't been to yet? I know you've travelled extensively, so. What's left? Oh, so many places. Yeah, so so many places. And I think there are lots of times where I've I've gone somewhere. And you know, some people say like, oh, they've done Indonesia or they've done the Philippines or wherever. I don't think you can ever do somewhere and you know, like you tick it off and you've done it now. I don't I don't really sort of subscribe to that attitude when you're traveling. Um so there's lots of places that I would love to go back to as well, as as well as places that I haven't seen at all so I'd, I'd really um love to travel more in China and more in East and West mm-hmm. Africa <laughs> both sides so I've I spent quite quite a lot of time I mean as in I've been a few times to um places like Uganda which are really interesting like really awesome countries and you know because of the way we look at world maps here Africa looks kind of this sort of like shortened little elephant shape you know below us short and fat and and it sort of does a real real disservice to this extraordinary continent which is so vast and so varied so I think I could happily spend the rest of my life traveling in Africa exploring but I'd really like to go to West Africa I've never been to places like Ghana or the Ivory Coast so that would definitely be on my list. Why those places particularly? Do you know what? I don't know, Marcus. Do you find that? That sometimes places just sort of catch into your mind and then it's a place that represents something that you're kind of like, I don't know why, but I have to go. I think it kind of, it seems very vibrant and a really interesting combination of like really rich history and culture, but also quite a sort of important piece of the, like world global puzzle because it's got so much impact in terms of colonial history and it's got a lot of impact in terms of um you know certain um kind of rare earths and things like that that you know are in our smartphones and tablets and satellite communications and there's these little nations that aren't always in the best sort of situation in terms of geopolitical stability or you know good governance you know they've got corrupt governments and they've got companies going in there kind of exploiting the people exploiting the resources and we're all kind of turning a blind eye so I think 
because you know you want a new phone or you you don't want a new phone but you just want the one that you've got to to work better and we don't really think about the human cost because it's out of sight out of mind so I think it'd be really cool to explore that more that's really interesting I think just one of the parts that made me think about it is when looking back at my own history Cameroon is part of my family past so like that's why I want to go to that part West Africa but like you said you want to see that part, but the other the others as well. So I think there'll be so much just culturally as well. Just to, like you said, it's got so much resonance to where we are today, but we don't always not always mindful of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it sometimes frustrates me. I think it's really good that generally there is more awareness. People are more connected. You know, I, I don't really understand how being woke, you know, being aware of social and environmental issues and your impact on on the world and and kind of how these systems work. I don't know ever really how that became an insult, but I think it's great that people are slightly more aware, but we still have these blind spots. And I think we need to just be aware that that we have them, that we are biased, that there yeah. are prejudices, sometimes being manipulated by other people, but sometimes just because we don't go out, out of our way to find those extra stories, find those different perspectives. Yeah, it's safer to be where we are and know what we know. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's dead easy, isn't it, to feel fatigue, either kind of important issues fatigue or compassion fatigue, or I've got a lot of more on my own plate at the minute. Oh, I can't really, you know, I haven't got the bandwidth to take on the rest of the world's problems fatigue, which is totally understandable. And you have to pace yourself and you do have to kind of select the things that, you care about and that keep you up at night because otherwise you'd you'd be a wreck and a ruin but it is yeah I think we're not we're not fallible in terms of uh, knowing what to pay attention to and what actually might be more damaging but everyone's just keeping the spotlight pointing the other way I sound like a complete conspiracy <laughs> theorist don't I no there's a lot of realness in yeah. that and I, yeah I think a lot of people can appreciate that especially now in in lockdown because there's so many things happening globally and socially that you know it almost feels like there's a cancel culture if you don't say that you represent this or you stick up for this but we're all dealing with our own things during quite a stressful time yeah exactly you have to yeah it's it's, it's difficult isn't it because it is that balance between in, in the kind of great history of human evolution, we just wouldn't have been aware of what the other... I mean, there never were 7 billion people on the planet in, in the past. But, you know, you just wouldn't have been aware of what was happening outside your direct network. And so to some extent, that might have been enough to kind of fill your cup to overflowing with woe and sorrow and worry and joy and all the rest of it. Whereas now we're we're kind of in some ways invited into so many other people's lives and so many sometimes really intimate, kind of very raw experiences. And, you know, you pick up your phone and you flick through Instagram and you're not necessarily in the the headspace to kind of take that on. And yet when you kind of scroll past, you know, the picture of a, a child in Yemen starving to death, Oh, that makes me feel terrible as well because I'm like, hang on a minute, is is it that easy? And it's not, but I don't know. I don't know what the it's answer hard, is. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, I was having this conversation with someone yesterday that kind of biologically, are we even really equipped to handle all of this stimulus and all of this information? Because as you say, yeah, you you know, you wake up in the morning and you 
you know, you click onto the news cycle and it's all the things, all the things all the time. You know, it's kids in Yemen. It's, you know, the Uyghurs in China. It's, you know, you know, it's COVID. It's social justice. It's the, you know, the Derek Chauvin trial, etc. Like it's, it's kind of never ending. And I think it's really like, are we biologically equipped to actually deal with all of that information in such a, a short period of time? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not a biologist and clearly I'm not an anthropologist. Well, I, I know, but I think you, you've absolutely hit the, the nail on the head and the answer is no, not really. But then the flip side of that is that, you know, we're not really designed to put our heads in the sand and, and in, be entirely selfish either. And that's why we feel that, that pull, isn't it? That's why you feel that tension and that, um, dissonance almost where sometimes people will come out with something really kind of strident and like oh well that was their fault anyway they shouldn't have been doing x y or z and to some extent it might be what they actually think but on the flip side of it it might just be a, a kind of a, a an emotional coping mechanism because you can't necessarily sit with and live with the truth of well that could have been me in different mm -hmm. circumstances because it's too horrific and you wouldn't get out of bed and you know in the morning I, I make a, a podcast for audible called happiness and how to get it and in each episode we speak to a, a kind of an expert about the research around a particular aspect of of happiness or well-being not the kind of airy fairy you know like not jade eggs but actual <laughs> you know useful legit stuff and um we spoke to one expert called Dr. Zara Vorha, who specializes in um, mental health and digital mm -hmm. well-being. And she, uh, one of the best pieces of take-home advice that we got throughout the whole season that I definitely use now is don't let the world in until you're ready. Because so often, you know, particularly if your phone is next to your bed and you've got your alarm set on it, that is the first yeah. thing you engage with. Even if you're like sleeping next to your partner, you don't turn and talk to them first. You communicate with your phone and this kind of Twitterverse or the Instagram or whatever it is or your emails and she's like take a breath take a moment just center yourself and then decide so it's on your terms when you let the rest of the world in I was like oh profound it's good it's good advice though and dead easy to do you know like you're not having to change your life and have Wednesdays <laughs> my phone free day which most people can't do um, it's just like breathe first, go to the loo, brush your teeth, yeah. and then check your phone. You're like, mm, yeah, okay, I can manage I that. I think that's really good advice, Doable. actually. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so, the outdoors. Um, you and Marcus, obviously, I, I don't know if you know each other from before, but obviously, you're on the um, Art Terex panel, diversifying the outdoors. It would just be really interesting to hear. Firstly, what you took away personally from that panel that you hosted and also what what the outdoors really means to you and how the your anthropology studies play into that relationship. Yeah, so I found the diversifying the outdoors um, panel and also the meetings that we all had, you know, virtually beforehand, so interesting and so, so stimulating because... I like to think that I, you know, at least have half a heads up on 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 the issues um, in 
questions around diversity and equity and inclusion. But there were so many things that came up that I just had moments where I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yes, of course, that would make you think twice about entering a space, whether it's a climbing gym or, you know, going to a youth hostel to go backpacking or whatever it is that there's certain things, you know, where just talking to other eloquent individuals about their experiences and their perspectives makes you reflect on your own preconceptions. There was one thing that you said, Marcus, which was about, I think it was about feeling safe in spaces and like whether there were things that people did or didn't do in order to make it feel more safe or more acceptable. And you said, well, of course, I wouldn't do something like go for a run in London wearing a black hoodie. And I was like, why not? (gasps) Oh my God. It's not because he's worried that he might get hit by a car. It's because a black man running down the street wearing a hoodie might be, you know, I don't know, like whatever the assumption is, fill in the blank. And I was just like, oh my God, I hadn't even crossed my mind. And it was like little moments like that, that really hit home for me because it's kind of people's lived experience that as much as you try to imagine what other people, that, that you know, as much as you tell yourself your experience isn't the be all and end all, it's just really useful to have those moments where you can engage with, you know, real life humans going, this is how it is for me. And I think the other thing that I really liked about that Arcteryx panel discussion was that most of the conversation was focused on solutions and positive action of things that people can actually do rather than spending an hour rehashing the trauma and injustice. Because I think otherwise you just come away either feeling angry or despondent, whereas hopefully people came away from that panel feeling empowered to do something to make things better. So I think that was a really powerful and useful thing. And the and the resources and the recording are online. So there's a Miro whiteboard with all our ad, sort of advice or suggestions. And there's a recording of the the whole event on YouTube, which is free to access. So you can always go and check yeah, that no, it was, out. It was a great, I thought it was a great panel. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well done you, Mark. Yeah. Well done us. Pats on the back. back. You've only got to say that because I'm I'm on the podcast with you now. (laughs) (laughs) And here you are again. Yeah. I'd say I send you a check, but no one sends checks anymore when they post, do they? (laughs) (laughs) Digital payments. (laughs) But just for the record, we haven't exchanged any of them either. It's all good. So your book, Hidden Histories, A Spotter's Guide to the British Landscape, gives the reader the opportunity for themselves to go out and be curious about the British landscape. So how do we get the balance right between going out and enjoying the outdoor spaces, but also preserving it for our future generations? It's a really good question. Uh, The outdoors for me is about, I guess, feeling connected. It's about feeling free. It's about feeling healthy. But it's also about feeling connected to kind of the, the community living around me or in the place that I'm, I'm in, but also connection to the past. And I think that's one of the things that has always motivated me to write about archaeology, um, particularly British archaeology, because ours is quite a little island and it's absolutely rammed full of the evidence of people's past lives, people's lives who've come before us. You know, this island has been permanently inhabited for more than 10,000 years And if you kind of know what little details to look at or look for, then as you're trail running, walking, uh, even driving or sitting on a train, 
going through the landscape, you can spot these little clues and go, oh, hang on a minute, that looks like ridge and furrow, which are the remains. It's sort of like the ghostly remains of medieval ploughing. Or you're going, you know, up into the hills and you see a cairn, uh, a mound of stones, and you can kind of have a little tick list in your head of things it might possibly be. So it might be a walker's cairn for navigation, but it might actually be um, a Bronze Age burial mound. So it's about 4,000 years old and it might have human remains buried underneath it. And I, I, th- I just think that's magical because most of these places, most of these historical archaeological sites, I mean, somewhere like Stonehenge, obviously you can get like a glossy souvenir program and you can buy a ticket and go for a walk around it, blah, blah, blah. But you can also walk on the footpath for free next to it. But most of these places, they're sort of just there. And, and they're, if you notice them, then great. And if you don't, then you just walk past and you kind of go, oh, that's a lumpy, bumpy field. But you wouldn't really necessarily think more about it. So I wrote Hidden Histories as a, as a spotter's guide. So you can flick through, like put it in the loo, put it on the coffee table, flick through. You pick up one little bit of info. And the next time you're out in the countryside, you can go, oh, this hedgerow is a funny shape. I wonder why. And you notice things that you probably just wouldn't have, it, they wouldn't even registered before. And I think that's a wonderful thing because, I mean, my mum's Indian and my dad's Polish. I grew up in, uh, in Cheshire near Manchester. So in kind of literal terms, they're not my ancestors because this isn't where my family's from back in the day. But in cultural terms, in in terms of where I sort of feel like my roots are partly and where I feel like is home, Britain is it. And so they are my ancestors because the thing about Britain is that it is every generation is a generation of people from somewhere new bringing new ideas and new ways of doing things. That's really interesting. I feel like I need to go and get that book. Actually, I love the idea of like because because <laughs> yeah, I love the idea of like you know just as you say, kind of flipping through and seeing a few things, and then going out on a trail run and being like, oh, this is that, and this thing that I've never noticed before could be X, Y, or Z. It just kind of yeah, it brings the trails to life in a, in a different way, and it makes you experience yeah, experience the outdoors in a completely different way. Yeah, I think so, and it doesn't need to be kind of worthy or serious or boring it can be like on your own terms so if you want to just kind of get into the zone and just go for it then great but if you notice that you're running a particular route in the peak district and there's suddenly big flagstones on the path then then you kind of go awesome I wonder why maybe this is a pack horse trail you run over a little um a little bridge and it's got low uh, low walls and you go oh that's so that the panniers on the little ponies could get past without getting stuck you can carry on doing your PB, but um, you might also, you know, just have the other bit of your brain sort of learning interesting yeah. things. Absolutely. And something I was just thinking about in regards to the diversity element, especially now during lockdown, people have discovered these spaces that were always there and in some cases are kind of not really caring or not really knowing the etiquette for those places, say, you know, not sticking to the past. And that having an impact on the surrounding areas. So I'm always just a bit mindful of just that element, really, of just preserving and, you know, be mindful. Is that something that you talk about in the book as well? About, you know, you go explore these places, um, but don't just like park up, put a picnic there, pick things up and <laughs> take it home with you. Yeah, yeah. Generally, if it's archaeological, leave it be. Uh, otherwise, you're breaking the law. Yeah, it, it, 
I don't go into it too much with hidden histories, but a lot of the other work that I've done, for example, with the British Mountaineering Council, is definitely around that. I think the thing we have to be clear on is that a lot of the time people are doing something in the countryside, not because they want to be malicious or harmful. You know, there are some people who go around fly tipping and, you know, graffitiing ancient stones. We're not talking about those people because we can all agree that, I don't know what language I'm allowed to use, they're wrong-uns, should we say. (laughs) (laughs) But, But if you're, you know, on a muddy path and you're also trying to keep social distance from a group of people coming towards you and you can't, you've got, you're not necessarily sure what it is that you're walking on if you step off the path. If someone points out that actually what you're walking on is is the wheat for next year and that's going to be your bread and that not only are you walking on your own food, you're also walking on, um, you know, a farmer's livelihood. That's a lot so of pressure, actually, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, like um, you know, that's that's nine thousand loaves of bread yeah. we've just destroyed walking on the edge of this field through a muddy week. You go, well, just don't put your best trainers on, put a pair of wellies on instead, and stick to the path. And people go, oh, oh yeah, all right, sorry, I hadn't realised. Or you know, you think your little dog, old Fluffykins, would never chase a sheep because he's a good dog and he's your dog. Of course, he's the apple of your eye. But the thing is, dogs are, you know, there is a bit of wolf in them and they get into that red mist hunter-herder mode and they stop listening to you. You know, at that point, you you don't exist anymore, but the fluffy things running away from them are everything. And so you just don't don't take a chance. Legally, your dog needs to be under close control. But you go, well, what does that mean? That means that when you call it, it comes straight back. If you're not sure, and I would never be sure with a dog, put it on a lead. And then it's not you with 40 dead sheep on your hands because they don't need to catch them all. They run away and they die of shock or they abort their lambs because they're so stressed out by this dog. The dog doesn't actually need to catch them to kill them. So put your dog on a lead, enjoy your walk and, uh, you know, let someone else earn a livelihood. And also, you know, you haven't killed like a herd of sheep. I didn't know that. People don't I didn't realize. know that about. I, I knew that that they died of shock, which always seemed, I mean, not not amusing, but just the idea of it. But the <laughs> I didn't know about the aborting of the lambs. That makes me feel so sad. Yeah, yeah, they can miscarry, and dog poo can make cows miscarry their calves. There's a particular like pathogen in dog poo. So even if you're in the countryside and you're like, well, it's it's a massive hedge. I mean, where do you think the foxes shit? Yeah. They do over there. But what's in your dog's feces is totally different to what's in a wild animal's. So bag it. Yes, it stinks, but it's your dog, so suck it up. Bag it. Carry it out. Don't hang it in a tree. Oh, dudes, come on. Don't hang dog poo bags no, in a tree. No, I don't know what that's about. No. <laughs> no one knows what that's about. And yet people do it. What's going on there? So I think it's a lot about education. And I think possibly breaking down, breaking down barriers and forging better, more like positive communication-based relationships. So, you know, people have a sort of an attitude about farmers being, go off my land, or I get you with my pitchfork, or I shoot you with my shotgun. Most farmers aren't like that. Most landowners are absolutely delighted to see people enjoying the countryside. Like the majority of farmers have a farm shop or a cafe or like holiday lets, as well as whatever, you know, livestock or agricultural arable crops they grow. So it's not like they hate us. 
It's just that they're aware of the risk and the damage that we might potentially cause if we don't act responsibly. So it's kind of, it's a two-way thing. Like they have responsibilities to make sure that you can get through a field without being, you know, under threat by cows. But also we have a responsibility to kind of behave correctly. And most of that is education, I think. And opportunity. If you've never been to the countryside, why would you know what the rules are? Why would you know how to behave? In the same way that if I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a thing that I've got no idea about. If I, I don't know, went to a skate park, I've never been, I can't stand on a skateboard without falling off. I wouldn't know what the rules are. I'd need someone to say, oh, hi, you new here, let me help. Or if people just gave me a dirty look, then I'd, I just wouldn't feel welcome. Yeah, I agree. That makes a lot of sense. So obviously you have a passion for the outdoors. You are an anthropologist. You've got a passion for archaeology. Kind of, How did that all come about? Were there, you know, heroes or heroines when you were growing up, either either real or fictional, that you kind of looked up to and thought, yeah, that's what I want to do? So I think that in terms of sort of my approach to life, my best hero, heroine, is my mother, So she was a single mum and she had tough, tough times raising me and my brother, but she went out of her way to give us every opportunity. And sort of, it was at the time, you kind of don't really realise what your parents are doing for you often, do you? And it's only when you reflect back as an adult, you're like, oh, oh, that was really tough. So I I think sort of hats off to her in terms of like work ethic and trying to, be good. (laughs) I know that sounds so like vague, but you know, like be a positive force in the world, try and do things that make a difference in a good way to other people. Um, In terms of archaeology and anthropology, that's a really good question. I, I had a bit of a circuitous route into working out what I wanted to do. So going up through school, I, I always wanted to be a vet because I quite like animals. But then I didn't really much enjoy chemistry, and I thought, oh, mm. seems to be a lot of chemistry in veterinary science. And um, I thought, oh, maybe I could be a dog trainer. I thought, oh, uh, you know, you kind of, back in the day before Google, you kind of, you know, you look through the careers book, and it said that a dog trainer, like once you become a dog trainer, you sort of just deal with people's, like, badly behaved pets. And it didn't appear that you earned very much money, which wasn't like my primary motivating factor, but, you know, a little bit of like, well, where do you go then? And uh, I ended up kind of working out. I thought, oh, I could train guide dogs. That sounds more interesting because that's people and animals. And then got into finally, finally kind of pinned it down. I thought, well, I do want to go to university. So what would I study, even if I then went and was a guide dog trainer? And then I thought the thing that I like about guide dogs is that relationship between the people and the animals, like that that working relationship between the human and the dog. And that's ultimately what led me to anthropology. I told you it was circuitous. Because um, I was like, oh, because anthropology is all, it's the study of people in the broadest sense. So you can do biological anthropology, which is all about human evolution, our relationship with other primates, like um, other apes like chimpanzees and gorillas, but also like the the monkeys, and also our sort of ancestral species of of um, apes and other sort of primate ancestors. 
But then you can also look at the social anthropology, which is everything from sort of modern cultures, um, and you can do anthropology at home. There's a brilliant researcher who was at Cambridge when I was there who did loads of work on the culture of horse racing in Newmarket. And then she went and worked in a bookies and did the culture of people in in like betting shops and how those communities work. To, to everything to... Um, you know, places that are much more remote and it might be something about, you know, indigenous land rights in the Brazilian Amazon. So the breadth of anthropology is just massive and that really appealed to me. So it's a very interesting subject and I feel very, very fortunate that I'm still able to do research and present that information to audiences, whether it's, you know, a radio programme or a TV documentary or a book. I'm really curious when you sort of speak about, just going back to the start of that, talking about being raised by a single mother like how she encouraged you and how you developed your love of the outdoors. Like for me, for example, growing up, education was everything. So, you know, joining, doing running or sports was kind of like a frivolous activity. So how did you get that juxtaposition (laughs) between education and still enjoying outdoor things that weren't seen as kind of getting to a career type thing? Yeah, that's interesting. I think she was, I think him, there was almost an assumption that we'd do our homework. And so within, you know, within the resources that we had, a lot of the stuff we did was a bit more outdoorsy, I guess. It wasn't kind of going to art galleries or, um, you know, kind of dance shows um, or like having music lessons particularly. It was it was kind of more... Um, so we, we joined a, a group of conservation volunteers. And so on the weekends, we'd... And I realise now that obviously this was kind of a means where my mum had a bit of a social life, even though she had two two kids. But also it meant that me and my brother would like go along and hang out with this bunch of adults who would let us use things like bow saws to chop down trees. Nowadays, I think probably if you're 12, you're not allowed to do stuff like that because, you know, everyone's slightly more aware that 12-year-olds are a bit dim and they might chop their own legs off. Um, but there was that sort of like that that sense of independence and um, empowerment of sort of almost being treated like an equal, which is an amazing thing to give a child. Um, you know, whether they're seven or whether they're 17, if you talk to a a young person like they're an equal and you offer them trust then more often than not they repay it in spades if you treat them like a kid they act like a kid I mean that's true of pretty much you know however old you are and so we did things like um you know help rebuild dry stone walls or or kind of you know repair footpath styles and things like that and so there was to some extent a kind of just that that kind of being outdoors felt like a a safe, free, familiar place to be. And then the more sort of adventurous stuff, I joined the Air Cadets when I was about 13. So that was an opportunity to go and do things like canoeing and like rock climbing and a um, bit of hill walking. But I really only properly got into sort of outdoorsy, like proper developing my skills, hiking, navigation, um, wild camping, things like that. In my twenties, um, you know, I kind of had like a bit of a fallow period. Lots of people go on expeditions and things when when they're at university, but I just I didn't have any money, and I didn't know the right people. I'm sure there was an exploration society, but I'm, I suspect it was probably a bit posh. Um, that might be unfair. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Um, 
But um, yeah, so I just got into it myself and I thought, well, I haven't, I haven't, I can borrow a car, but I haven't got much money. So I'll go and camp on Dartmoor. So I did. I kind of bought a, my brother gave me a book called The Book of the Bivy, which is a brilliant little book by, by a bloke called Ronald Turnbull. And it's like very dry humoured about basically sleeping in hedges with a bivy bag, which is this like Gore-Tex outer that you put your sleeping bag in. So instead of having a tent, you've just got your your bag and you put your rucksack next to you. So you're kind of like a little hobo and you can sleep anywhere because you're so inconspicuous and you're not lighting a campfire or anything like that. And, you know, catching trout out of the local stream. I mean, it's not like a boy's own adventure. You've got your your food in your rucksack and you've got a camping stove. But it was amazing. It was amazing because I was like, oh, I can go anywhere like this. And it doesn't cost that much. You know, you get your train fare to Exeter, off you go. Um, yeah, so that's amazing. People say, well, aren't you worried about like being murdered? You're like, there's no one there. It's all right. Far more likely to get murdered in Hatfield, which is where I live now in Hertfordshire, than I am ever going to get murdered on Dartmoor by a kind of serial killer sheep. Probably safe. <laughs> Love the idea of a serial killer sheep. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you're the woman with that dog. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, yeah, fl- Fluffykins. Oh, yeah, you're the Fluffykins owner. <laughs> Fluffykins, I know. Fluffykins, he's a devil. Yeah, and I think it does take it does take confidence, doesn't it, to do something new, especially if you just don't know really where to get started or you sort of have a little foray into an activity or you like go to a group meet and you're like oh these aren't really my kind of people or you don't it doesn't feel just doesn't feel like a a good fit it can really knock your confidence and really put you off and I think there's a, a big responsibility isn't there um in like clubs groups to sort of say you know everybody represents the club so if you're standing next to someone whose name you don't know however much you've had a hard day however much you're in your own space and you're like, oh, I'm not really a friendly, you're like, I'm not the outgoing one. They'll have to go and talk to so-and-so. You've got to make a bit of an effort because you could genuinely transform that person's experience. You could put them off for life or you could make them go, oh, these people are all right. Okay. Yeah. I'll come back next week. I think um, we all take, we all need to take a bit of responsibility for sort of being open and being friendly and saying, yeah, you can join our club because otherwise people feel excluded and that's rubbish. Yeah, we see that a lot with running clubs, I think. Yeah. I'm <laughs> so I, I kind of love that I'm on a, a trail running podcast because full disclosure here, after my first child, I'm pregnant now, so running feels a bit of a stretch, but like proper running. Um but I uh, I, I kind of uh, this might be too much information, but it's probably useful for some of your listeners. I got a prolapse. Mm-hmm during labor which is basically where you end up with part of your internal organs in the wrong place like one of the muscle walls um sort of gives in a bit and so some people get really can be really badly affected and like be doubly incontinent and need some pretty hefty surgery and I thankfully wasn't in that situation but it did mean that I went from kind of feeling fit and active and being able to go running I really like going orienteering never never gonna win (laughs) too slow to win but really enjoyed the sort of challenge to kind of going oh hang on a minute if I if I try and run to the end of the road I wet myself that's not cool 
must stop doing that and had some like pretty intensive um like specialist physio where she was like basically you need to be able to do pelvic floor exercises kegels whilst running properly and at that point then you're allowed to actually go running I was like right okay that's a challenge so I was kind of just getting to that point you know two years later I'm now on preggers again so I'm like back to the drawing so it's a hiking and pelvic floor exercises again now for me. Congratulations. Uh, so I feel like oh. a little bit of a... <laughs> Thanks. So, so for the <laughs> not so much seconds. on the incontinence, yeah. more yeah, on not, pregnancy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how do I... I can't move that first It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's really difficult to, to sort of... Um, to, to kind of adjust to that sense of like who you are because I kind of think of myself as active and quite sporty and I, it's important to me. It makes me feel good. And and being able to like be fit and run feels amazing. And to not be able to do that because I know that I'd be sort of ultimately doing long-term damage was pretty tough to sort of get my head around and kind of feel like, okay, it's all right. It's all right. This is just a phase. Like keep your nerve. Don't get despondent about it. I think it's quite difficult because, you know, you kind of, it's really easy to look on, look online and you see kind of elite sports people or even your mates sort of back up and running or back up to their kind of, you know, elite sports level. You know, Jasmine Paris, um, you know, won the, the, the spine race and she was breastfeeding and I was like, that sucks. I mean, like, it's great for her, but it's, it's hard, isn't it, to sometimes not compare yourself and find yourself lacking. Hang on, I just gotta let the dog. <laughs> he woke up. <laughs> this is real life, people. Real life happening right now. It is. Absolutely. Do you know you ever listen to like Louis Theroux's like podcast? He has these moments in which are absolutely perfect. This is about real life, yeah. yeah. So uh, if you sorted out Fluffykins. <laughs> um Oh yeah, I was just saying it's it's really it's really easy to compare yourself, isn't it? And then feel like you're really lacking, but you've kind of just got to follow your own path. Easier said than done. Yeah, I think first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. Oh I yeah, think, no worries. I think a, a yeah, it's, it's like a dirty yeah. secret, but loads of women. Yeah, have well, it. I mean, I mean, fifty percent <laughs> of the population are women, right? And I don't know what percentage of those are mothers, and you know. I, I'm a personal trainer and I train a lot of mums and, you know, there are, it, it's an issue for, you know, whether you've had um, a prolapse or not, going out and running after childbirth, it's not, it's not easy and it can take a really long time to recover. And I think there's this perception that you have a kid and then you bounce back and you're back to it. And, you know, there's this idea that everyone should be kind of back to where they were pre, pre, pre-pregnancy and you know everyone's body is completely different and everyone's body is going to respond to pregnancy completely differently and I think I think it's really helpful to just hear for people to hear that yeah this is all normal and this is all this is all part of it yeah yeah definitely definitely and and to kind of not feel like you've failed or that your body's let you down or anything like that I, I think it's it's kind of it is really useful to to kind of just talk about these things, isn't it? Um, and to say, you know, you're kind of not, it's not a kind of life sentence. I mean, it's such a small thing in some ways. And you go, look, otherwise I'm really healthy. I've got this amazing kid. What am I moaning about? But when you feel like your body 
operates differently to how it did before, sometimes that's kind of wonderful. Like, like breastfeeding, you're like, oh my God, my body can do this amazing thing. Not everyone has that experience, but but I did. But then in other way, in other ways, like if you're trying to travel fast and you're like, I just feel like all my arms and legs and my middle is just not in the right place. It doesn't feel strong. It doesn't feel like it's sort of connected in the way that it was before. That's quite that's quite tricky because um yeah, you you to some extent you kind of have to be 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 careful to make that not that you've lost a part of yourself that you have to say this is just different and I'm going to do things differently now so I did um uh last no before lockdown 2019 I did the um a, a mountain marathon so the people who are obviously competing are running like they're fell running they're running fast and navigating as you go I was like well I can't do that but I still want to go on the journey through the landscape I still want to test myself against myself mm -hmm. and so I did but I did it at a walk and it it was different to what I would have done perhaps before Cole my son was born but it kind of it felt good it felt good to kind of just go oh, I'm going to do it anyway I'm just going to do it slightly differently thank you for sharing that and yes, I just Marcus. want to give you one <laughs> thing sorry this full disclosure what's happening with my internet is kind of coming in and out so when you were talking before you said about childbirth and then obviously about the bits that followed it I thought you'd finished speaking so I said congratulations but then it cut back in and you were still talking so it seemed like I was just going <laughs> congratulations about you you're pissing yourself <laughs> so, sorry about that that's alright I, kind of, I kind of figured I, I worked out which bit you were congratulating me on that's all good thank you to the internet for that anyhow back to normality <laughs> it's a google special yeah so kind of talking about talking about stuff um it's it's been said that to know who you are and where and, and where you're going you have to kind of understand where you've come from and you've already spoken a little bit about that about you know your your mum being Indian your dad being Polish and kind of how how kind of ancestrally this land feels to feels to you but looking at your work as an anthropologist um social injustice is is very much part of our human culture unfortunately um so to make real change what lessons can we as black trail runners learn from the past in your opinion and yeah what what can we do to make sure that the steps that we're taking now are are impactful oh it's i mean it's such a thorny issue isn't it I mean firstly I think the fact that organizations like Black Trail Runners exist is an amazing step and not to be um kind of taken for granted really I mean I think on the flip side of it it's kind of a, almost a bit sad in a very abstract way to kind of go it's a shame that you have to have that group because surely it should just be trail runners you know, and, and it should look like a United Colours of Benetton advert. Um, but I think, I don't know, people are, humans are tribal. And and we, we don't, we're not particularly, we're very sociable, highly sociable as, as animals go. We're very intelligent. We learn from those who've come before us. So that's, I mean, why we can have satellite communications. That's why there's a helicopter on Mars. That's why you know, people can go deep sea diving or survive at the South Pole. 
But the flip side of that is that it means that you also inherit and learn the bias and the prejudice of the generations that have come before. And that there are, you know, in our increasingly complex globalized world, there are systems of inequality and systemic, systematic inequality and injustice, sometimes with historical basis, often with historical, often with historical basis, but sometimes more new Um that are very sophisticated and they're hard to unpick from the outside. And it's very hard as an individual to kind of know what to do to make a difference. I think one of the things that's pretty important is vote, like be engaged politically. If you're in that headspace where lots of us are and, and, you know, it's, it's entirely understandable to kind of go, they're all terrible. That might not be wrong, but it's not a reason to disengage. I think in terms of individual action for for groups who are united by something like their love of trail running or the passion for running, it's partly about being open, being welcoming. Um, I saw this uh, uh, like lovely post on Instagram um, around Ramadan, sort of saying, uh, and it was a... a a girl who's Indian, and she's saying, I just like to say to sort of my South Asian brethren that it's good to be an ally to the Black Lives Matter movement, but that's not enough. We need to carry that into all aspects of our lives. And so I will invite you all to the next time you're in a mosque, reach out to not just the aunties and uncles, you know, sort of often in in sort of Asian um, traditions, you know, everyone who's a little bit older than you is an auntie or an uncle, whether they're, you know, blood relatives or not. And there's a kind of an automatic respect and there's an automatic sense of community connection. She was like, reach out to our black brothers and sisters who are also praying to the same God and celebrating this special time of year because they are your aunties and uncles as well. They are your cousins. Treat them as such. It's good. We need to move beyond those kind of more crude categories like BAME, where everybody's lumped in together as non-white. It becomes an oppositional definition. You are that because you're not this other thing. And I think that's fundamentally quite divisive and it's not sophisticated enough to make real change happen. And so I think we need to move beyond that um, and sort of acknowledge that there is baked in injustice, but it's not necessarily permanent. Even if we've had it for centuries, it doesn't need to be that way for centuries more. I think it's interesting you sort of say about it not being permanent and obviously things are sort of fluid because when you look at things now, like history, I mean, people make a lot of assumptions, say in Britain, that firstly, like Britain was an island but he wasn't as part of mainland Europe. <laughs> yeah, until about 6,000 BC. Yeah, like quite recently in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, exactly. And obviously there's people that are, have been found, such as Cheddar Man, who was dark-skinned. People assume that everyone here was white and whatnot, but that's not the, not the case. So it feels like there's like a massive disconnect between where we are presently, i.e. say with Brexit and the perceptions of skin colour related to Britishness, because I'm sure a lot of black people have been asked, like, where are you from? You're like, well, I'm from here. <laughs> and the answer they're looking for yeah. is from Africa. <laughs> Croydon. Technic- and they yeah, go, no, exactly. no, where are you from, from? 
Yeah. Where are your people from? And you're like, oh. <laughs> your people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're all from Africa. So that's, you know, if we want yeah, to Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. 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 I'm um, from probably the like the Rift Valley in Kenya, ultimately, my friend, just like you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So with that being said about all these kind of thoughts about what Britishness is, what does being British mean to you? I don't want to sound sort of jingoistic, like I'm about to like pick up a Union Jack and start singing God Save the Queen. But I feel but you like... Are. <laughs> <laughs> are you ready? Um, yep. <laughs> I, I feel like in the best version, Britishness is about values of fairness, um, public accountability, democracy... Britishness is about finding a balance between personal endeavour and effort and also shared social responsibility. So I think that we some sometimes sit in a in we have the benefit, you know, inherited through history, accidents of history perhaps, between, you know, that kind of that myth of the American dream, like everyone's a self-made man. You go, no, you're not. You you inherit all this privilege. You're just choosing to ignore it um, and say that you did it or that, you know, your dad came with nothing and he turned this, you know, 46, you know, business outlets, something, something empire, whatever. It's kind of, it's just not true. Wealth begets wealth much more than working hard in a, you know, two pretty low paying jobs that I mean people do climb out but you know by the the bleeding stumps of their fingernails but I think Britain there is in in the best version of Britain there is the opportunity to both support each other and I mean that the best version of Britain there's a an opportunity to help yourself and help your family but also be supported by community and state, working hand in hand rather than in opposition. I don't know if we're in our current sort of political socioeconomic climate. I don't think that's where we are now. Um, I think there's, I think it's much crueler than that at the moment. And I think the people who are most vulnerable and with the least possible resources to protect themselves against economic shocks, against mental ill health, against poor physical health, against poor housing conditions, against opportunities to explore, find relaxation, connect with nature, be in places that are, you know, good for your well-being rather than detrimental, like literally the environments that you're spending time in, living in, or, or you know, socialising in or working in. Everything is unequal at the moment and I think we should and must do better because otherwise we're sacrificing a generation and and I kind of think you know I'm I'm, I'm a middle-aged tax-paying voting person these days I'm a homeowner like that's on me I need to be part of that solution because otherwise my kids are going to grow up and go like well what were you doing when all that was going down I'll be like getting on with life don't know like digging the garden I mean that's not an okay answer that's not enough so the best person, the best version of British is doing something about it and actually being able to hold power to account and make leaders accountable. The worst version of British is that kind of 
harking back to some kind of nostalgic, romantic version of the past, which is just a complete myth, and people getting, you know, whipped into a frenzy, often on, often online, but then that spills out into how people act on the street, whether that's throwing paint at a, um, at the wall of a synagogue, or whether that's spitting at the feet of someone wearing hijab. Like, that's not okay. That isn't a world that I want to live in. That is not a country that I am proud to say I am a citizen of. And I think we all need to call it out, I think. The other day, I... The other day I was working with someone who just made this kind of flippant comment about travellers and, and then sort of I said, oh, you know, or whatever they call themselves. And I just kind of stopped. And it was in conversation and there was a group of us. And I thought, if I say that's racist, you can't slur an ethnic minority like that. Because the conversation had moved on and I, I, I felt really torn and it still kind of eats me up now because I let a racist comment happen and did nothing. So it, mean that, it means that I feel like I've let myself down or let my society down because I didn't do my job calling out racist language and a racist attitude. Also, that person hasn't had an opportunity to kind of reflect on whether they even thought about what they said when they said it and maybe making a different choice again in the future. So I don't know. I think it's really interesting what you're saying because I think in these moments there are uncomfortable moments where things happened and things have been said and then you're processing it and then time is going by and then it's almost like too late to kind of jump in. Then you're sort of thinking about what we could have done or what afterwards, which is a, t a tough sort of mental thing to kind of go through. But also from what I got from what you're saying is you were kind of really sort of focusing just on, I guess, less of like the historical sort of stuff, but the values uh, the people, what they should represent in terms of community. And I don't know whether I'm getting this right, but my sort of assumption is that people might have this idea that it's permanent Britishness or whatever, but really are just custodians for this place now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we have to see our responsibility, our duty, as in handing it on to the next generation in better shape than when we got yeah. it. It can't be, you know, we can't be kind of attempting to preserve this kind of historical artifact. Here you go, here is Britain. And I think it's one of the things that really frustrates me about all the debate around statues. You know, should we keep statues of, you know, racist colonial patriarchs in places of prominence in public, in public um, spaces? And you go, no, of course we shouldn't. I mean, the whole point of history is that, it is a process of writing and rewriting and analysing and reanalyzing the events of the past. It isn't that that's why you can get more than one book about the Magna Carta. It's why you can get more than one book about biblical archaeology. It's because we don't have a fixed, like this is the definitive, you know, guide to to this piece of history. Because there are different perspectives, there are different nuances, there are new interpretations, and that is right. That is actually how we think. That's how we should think. It's it's um if you want to get posh, it's called it's called a dialectic where you go from back one to the other and you have a an answer and a response. 
And then from that response, you build a new answer. That's the basis of science. It's the basis of, of, of most research. I can't remember, was it Aristotle? No, I can't remember which Greek philosopher it was. You have a thesis and a synthesis and an antithesis. So that's how you synthesize a better outcome. You, you pull together more than one response and then you build on that. And so it's entirely right that we um, don't kind of preserve, you know, these, these monuments as if they're sacrosanct. They're not. They're part of a, a kind of a, a living cultural history that we all have a stake in. I think that's the other thing. Whether it's, you know, prehistoric mounds or burial chambers, or whether it's, you know, a statue of Cecil Rhodes, we all have a, a voice in that debate. We all have a stake in that being part of our heritage. And so we equally have a responsibility to protect it, to look after it, to understand it, to educate each other around it. Yeah, I think yeah, you've raised a lot of really good points there. Are you just... Nothing to do with trail running. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you're running past a statue, <laughs> think about the role of representation in modern art. <laughs> well, I mean, stat statues could be a, a, a new project that you're that maybe you're going to be working on. <laughs> yeah. um, but it would, it would be, jokes aside, it would be good to know what 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 you're going to be working on in the future and what you're excited about. At the moment, I'm working on a couple of things uh, which I'm really excited about. One, which is um, a new book called The Briefest History of Human Life, and it's about our human origins. So right out of, um, from out of Africa to whether we are now living in a sort of 21st century version of a world where homo sapiens aren't really designed to, to live in this. And that's why we've got bad backs and sore eyes and a mental health epidemic. So everything all boiled down into hopefully quite a short book that you could read in a day. Um, yeah, how, so brief, how like, brief? You said it was brief. Like so 50,000 words. Okay. So kind of little, little-ish. Um, so, so even if you're not into like massive, you know, tomes, which I am not into massive tomes, reading massive tomes, they scare me. Um, you know, you should be able to kind of get a, a rip roaring ride through the history of humanity. And the other thing that I'm working on is a podcast for the British Mountaineering Council called Finding Our Way, uh, in which we, I interview, um, along with a, a co-host, Cress Allwood, who's an expedition leader. We interview people from climbing, walking and mountaineering backgrounds, but who people who have kind of more to say. So um, sort of we, we explore issues of diversity, um, physical disability, um, uh, access to the outdoors, all sorts of different things. Um, and so far, we've just started recording them and, and we'll be launching it shortly. Oh no, hang on, let me say that again because uh, it'll have been launched by the time this comes out. So it's uh, it's freshly launched and um, we've got some amazing interviews, some real insights. Everything from uh, Benita Norris talking about getting her period whilst summiting Everest to um, expedition leader um, uh, Stu Skinner talking about why he thinks everyone should have a mental health first aid qualification if they need a physical health first aid qualification. Because basically, you should be looking after body and mind. Oh, yeah, fascinating that. stuff. Lots to think about. I think that's really interesting to sort of see that because, like you said, there's more to people than just the outdoors, that kind of stuff. Like the stuff that makes them who they are. 
and the journeys that they're, they're on. So that's fascinating. And they, I think we'll definitely give that a listen. Obviously, it's yeah, no worries. Now I'm saying this. So I thank you for sharing that. And kind of moving towards the kind of the finish line, I was going to sort of talk to you about diversity, but I think we've, sort of, we've kind of covered that a little bit in some of the answers that you've said. Is there anything, I mean, obviously this is a two-way conversation. So is there anything that you are sort of experiencing right now in terms of like work or just something that you would want to be asked that we've not asked you? Um, no, I think, no, I don't think so. I think it's been a good chat. That's a great answer. That's not the answer I was looking for. <laughs> it's all excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was such an interesting list of questions that you sent me. I was like, whoo, all righty. I'm going to have a coffee before this. <laughs> that means we've done our research. We've done our research. I was a bit worried we took that sort of sharp, sort of take a breath when I asked you that question about what was British. Business, so that was, that was <laughs> I don't know. I got to write a PhD on that. Um, yeah, I... I think it's it's thorny, isn't it? I think so much of it is about communication and having conversations with people and not being scared to have those conversations. And and the sort of acknowledgement that no matter who we are, we're not going to get it all right. And it that's okay. You know, that that shouldn't be a reason that you don't have that conversation. Whether it's something about talking about race, whether it's something about talking about um enabling people with different physical needs to to access your sport or your your site or whatever it is or whether it's um you know having a conversation with a mate and you kind of go oh you know they're not quite themselves I'm sure they'll be all right (laughs) no just speak up speak up reach out because you know you can you can make a real difference you can you know in some circumstances when we're talking about mental health crises it can make a difference between saving someone's life and and then being having the confidence to to reach out and ask for help or just going I'm on my own with this and it becomes too much so i think um yeah i think we all have a responsibility to sort of you know do our best by other people i think that's the thing where you sort of should ask twice because typical british thing or even in the states or wherever you ask someone how are you they go i'm fine i'm good yeah but how are you doing really <laughs> And or, or do like a rating type thing and it's zero to ten because you can't lie and yeah well because yeah because we've got that we've got that funny thing isn't it where you go oh how how are you and you go yeah yeah good thanks you and you're yeah. not actually asking that question that's just saying good morning or you know it's yeah. it's just a it's a turn of phrase and yeah. if someone said oh actually terrible you go oh I didn't I wasn't actually asking, you know, all this, all this has happened and they start really going for it. You're like, oh, yeah. you've broken the rules. We should be talking about the weather now. Yeah. Um, so you're like, how are you is a different question. Or just letting, just letting someone know that you're there if and when they do want to talk. And when they do talk to you, don't try and fix them. Just listen it's all good you know it's it's kind of you're not there to suddenly be a psychiatrist you're not there to suddenly solve their problems you're just there to be alongside them so when you're in those really dark places if your mental health is not good just knowing like there's a breathing warm body nearby is the thing that makes a difference sometimes yeah definitely thank you for sharing that yeah no worries so yeah thank you so much for your time and for everything that you've shared um it's been super interesting we'll put make sure to put 
all those links in the show, show notes about things that you've spoken about the podcast and and your book when is your book coming out your new book oh yeah that's gonna be a while. <laughs> I'm still writing it so it's gonna be probably spring 2020 okay, so you just wet you, you just wet our appetites Dangerous, isn't it? See? <laughs> I'm teasing you it's because it's consuming me. It's keeping me awake at night. So I'm I'm kind of sharing that oh, pain with you. It's really fascinating, but writing is quite hard work because most of it's sort of sitting on your own with like a book and your laptop thinking a lot. I'd much rather be out for a, well, I was going to say a run, a kind of slow waddle these days, <laughs> a little, little mum waddle <laughs> up and down the road. <laughs> but what, <laughs> yeah, whatever, sitting on a park bench. Um, but no, I've got, a, I've kind of got a graft a bit for the next few months and get this, uh, get this, get this done. Get yeah, into the well, flow. I, look, I look forward to reading it when it, when it comes out. So, um, where can all of our lovely listeners and viewers follow your journey online? Okay. So probably, uh, go to Twitter or Instagram. My handle is at Mary Ann O-C-H-O-T-A. Um, and I've also got kind of updated news and events that I'm doing on my website, which is maryannohotter.com. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us at The Checkpoint. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and share online. Also, please remember to leave your review on the podcast platform that you selected, as it really helps our podcast to grow. Your support helps make this podcast possible. Remember, if you have any questions, get in touch with us via our Instagram page at Black Trail Runners. Or if you want to join our community, please search Facebook for Black Trail Runners and connect with us.